Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. As we approach the final season of Game of Thrones on April 14th, the Ringer is providing you with a deep dive on the show's first seven seasons and what to expect from season eight. Up on the website, staff writers like Allison Herman, Alyssa Bresnak, Zach Cram, and many more are analyzing what loose ends the show needs to address in the last season. Up on the video side, our resident Game of Thrones experts Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion are breaking down the show's top 25 moments in the 25 days leading up to the finale. You can find each day's videos up on our social channels like Facebook and Twitter and the compilation videos on youtube.com slash the ringer at the end of each week. And make sure to keep an eye out for even more Thrones coverage coming from us as we get closer to April 14th. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, it's Andy Greenwald Blues! Oh, I, that surprised me. I see what you did there. They I thought you kind of for a minute. Tim Tim Apple came through and took Bob Disney's little channel title. It's weird, right? Like, I don't know. Of the two majorly disappointing nothing burgers of the last three days, <laughs> which one was your favorite? Apple Plus or Mueller Plus? Mueller Plus. Obviously, today, Andy and I are going to be talking about the Apple TV Plus rollout that happened today in Cupertino. And a little bit later in the episode, I'm joined by Adam Neyman to talk about us and Dragged Across Concrete, um, the new movie with Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn. Uh, We had a really interesting conversation about that, so stick around for that. But Greenwald, let's let's just like... Wait, wait, wait. I got to cut you off. Are are you just assuming that I didn't see those movies this weekend? (laughs) Are you just assuming so, that I didn't go to the Cinematheque which is to check out the latest le- releases? Which one are you least likely to see? The home invasion movie or the okay, right. m- movie about two racist cops and it's a two hour and 45 minute crime movie? I feel pretty good about my choices to stay inside <laughs> and uh, start in on my Fosse Verdon screeners. I feel like I've made the right choices for my life at the moment, but that's not necessarily prescriptive. Yes. Andy and I are treading water a little bit right now because a bunch of shows that we want to talk about are are not on for another couple of weeks. So expect to hear a lot of Fosse Verdon talk, a lot of Killing Eve talk leading up to Game of Thrones, obviously, in about three weeks. So, um, Chris, which show about magical dancers are you more excited about, Fosse Verdon or The OA Season 2? Dude, don't, don't knock The OA Season 2. I'm kind of curious. I'm really curious, um, mainly because, you know, we had a lot of fun talking about it the first season. And I kind of can't believe they made a second season. And it's kind of amazing that Netflix now just buries stuff, right? Like, Netflix doesn't seem too psyched on having made a second season of the OA. Am I reading that wrong? I don't like, know what. So I guess what would you constitute? What constitutes something they are psyched about? Like what's a show recently that you feel like you felt the sheer weight of Netflix behind? Treble Frontera, I believe is how it's pronounced <laughs> in the native uh, Esperanto. Yeah, uh, there were look, I, I judge it like any. Listen, Chris, I'm just one man. And like every, like, like your normal, every workaday, every man, I judge things just for what I see in front of my eyes. And what's in front of my eyes are the giant billboards across from Sunset from Netflix HQ. Right. And well, that is quite literally the bubble. It. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, from here inside the bubble, I think they're still advertising Triple Frontier. Like, Nothing <laughs> to see here. We're not stopping any shootings anymore, let alone shootings through the power of interpretive dance. That's right. Um, That's right. Sorry for the spoilers for season one of the OA. But we should check it out. It's just... It's just interesting to me that in this peak glut whatever TV that now there's just so much that we're just yada yadaing second seasons of things that were quite noteworthy the first time around. It's fascinating. We'll have to check that out. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Apple TV rollout today because this is obviously something that we've been chatting about on and off for the better part of 18 months, I would imagine, since those first shows got announced um, the Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon morning show and uh, I believe the Damien Chazelle show and Steven Spielberg is reimagining of amazing stories. I think we're among the first few and they had announced that they'd be working with Jason Momoa and um, JJ Abrams on different things. So we've had this slow trickle and today we had an Apple event. Now there were lots of other things that were announced by Tim Cook and team today, including uh, a credit card extension of Apple pay that seemed to, I, I guess a be like, 
a hype beast credit card, but also <laughs> something that was supposed to be much more secure than, than most credit cards. So shout out to them. And also a newsreader service that was essentially going to be a sub- one subscription to rule them all service that would allow you to uh, pay, I think, I believe it's $9.99 a month. You can get subscriptions to dozens and dozens and dozens of titles. And then obviously there's the Apple TV rollout. And uh, it has kind of multiple tiers here. But what I think we all thought was that Apple was going to try and create a Netflix competitor. And instead they are trying to create the new cable box. It seems like what they are really trying to do is get inside of a lot of already establishes already established behaviors on the part of consumers. So whether it's paying for things like with a credit card or reading things right. like having subscriptions to magazines or watching stuff on TV, which is stuff we all we all, all of us do if you listen to the watch. Apple's trying to be the hub, right? And it's in some ways, it's almost early internet behavior. It's They are now trying to position themselves as the portal. Now, it's a shift for Apple because they used to be such a hardware-defined company, I think. Although, you know, they, they are known for things like iTunes and their iOS. But uh, what are sort of your initial takeaways from, this, from the, these announcements today? And we can get into the specifics. Well, it's interesting that you say iTunes because iTunes was notable, but iTunes is also mostly notable now for being a total clusterfuck, right? Like, I think that it, I, I think that Apple's sense of self and its defining trait, and it comes from Steve Jobs, I think, is that it is the idea that you said that they are the, they are going to be your everything. And that was always his idea, right? It was one box and everything would be inside of the box and it would be a sealed ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Everything would be there in your computer. You wouldn't need outside apps. Uh, you wouldn't need to modify it or get into the motherboard or whatever. You would just have the box that worked and did everything for you. So in a in one sense, if you squint, this announcement, or at least what I can parse from it, is along is in keeping with that original ethos of the company. That they will be people thought for a long time that Apple TV or whatever those words together meant that they were going to start making smart TVs and compete with like Samsung. Uh in fact, what they're trying to do is become the new version of your TV, right? They're going to be yes. the place where you can watch their stuff and other people's stuff, too. They're going to make it seamless and easy, I guess, to integrate your HBO subscription, your potentially your Disney Plus subscription, whatever other over-the-top service you're interested in, and then have it beamed directly through one app th- through all the boxes of your choice, whether it's your phone or your TV or not. That's, I guess, the play here what's hard and you can hear it the hesitation in my voice is so many details are still tbd the leg up that they have is obviously they have many more shows already in the can let alone in production than netflix and amazon did at this stage in their in their uh development Mm -hmm. but we don't know the price right we don't know the how the things are going to be delivered to our screens we don't know whether they're going to dump whole seasons whether it's all going to be available at once or not we don't quite know what we're going to be paying for, right? They right. just sort of assume that because we have the boxes and the screens, we are going to be paying for it. It's a kind of cockiness that is very typical for the company, um, but one that I think is coming off a little bit differently because they're acting cocky in an arena they've never played in before. Well, um, and they're they're about to go, they're not just doing battle with upstart thing like an upstart company like Netflix, although Netflix has obviously been around for a while and has a lot of money to play with. They're about to, I think, start doing battle with places like Cablevision and Spectrum and, you know, these sort of monolithic, huge communications corporations. And I think that that's a different arena to be in. I get the, I I think if somebody was like, what is Apple trying to do? I would say they are trying to create the infrastructure or architecture for how you watch television. And um, I don't know where the money is in that for them. I assume I, it's buying, like the on on top of the table that the you know the box, the Apple TV box. But it sounds like they'll also be building Apple TV into new Samsung and LG TVs. So, right. I mean, in some ways, they are becoming the new TV guide. Is that crazy to you say that? Well, I don't know. I mean, I want, let me, let me just be frank. Like the thing that I seem to be getting from what they're doing is something that I want. And I talk about this all the time. And, you know, I, if it, if it earns me my old man badge, if I haven't already, uh, so be it, I'll take it. Like I am very into the idea of them, uh, 
helping me watch stuff, streamlining it for me. Like I, that is actually appealing to me. I would like to cut the cord. I would like to have uh, an appropriate number of subscriptions and then have them all through one app. And I would like that app to tell me when the new shows are available. I find that very uh, helpful. And I think that's smart. I don't, I don't think I'm the only uh, old man or old woman who is desirous of that kind of interface. I don't like, you know, all, I don't like having unlimited choices all the time, including in, un, in what apparently are an unlimited number of apps and over-the-top services. I would like a hub. And if they've decided that their business strategy is to spend, you know, just a cool billion, which is nothing to them on original content, great. But if that is, if that original content is the icing to get you to buy into the cake hub, um, okay. I get it. But I do think they have to tread carefully because for as much as we as a society are accustomed to Apple introducing us to magical things through gauzy 30 second commercials or stagey, um, presentations from the stage in Cupertino, this idea where they're like, we are going to blow your mind in a way that's never been blown before. Here's a Octavia Spencer TV show and one from the guy who did Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> yeah. That's not the same as revolutionizing what telephones. Well, mean. it's you almost like I mean? this, this entire, uh, rollout of not only here's some original content, we're going to spend a billion dollars, yada, yada, but also with along with that original content, we're going to completely change the way you turn on and then experience television as you go through your day it, is the actual thing that they are revolutionizing and, and the real thing that they're iterating against. Um, I will say this, you know, I, I don't have a lot of like, I, I don't have like a lot of Silicon Valley experience, but I do have consumer experience and I obviously do watch a lot of stuff and plenty of it is through my Apple TV now. And there are some like straight up practical, hardcore, like this shit doesn't work problems that I have with some Apple products right now. Um, yes. And Apple products are dumb expensive and they have like a 25 month at the most shelf life seemingly. And the remote control doesn't really work. Uh, and you know, that, that may speak to some, like somewhat to my age, but I also think that this is uh this is a huge investment to make if it's only going to appeal to early adopter tech savvy type people. Like I don't know I don't know if my mom could use an Apple TV remote, which may or may not matter to their bottom line, but I think it's worth mentioning. I think that's fair, but I also think that the Apple TV and the Apple TV remote are secondary if not tertiary to the fact that everyone has an Apple phone and yes. mostly yeah. knows how to work that. And that's what they're programming towards but you're speaking to i think what is as much as a one trillion dollar valuated company can have achilles heels but i think you've identified it i mean first of all in the broadest strokes i don't think they make stuff as well as they used to they certainly haven't innovated um to the degree that they did a decade ago in quite some time now i don't know if any company will ever have like a one two three punch or four punch or however many punches they did when they just changed basically how we do everything yeah. at the beginning of the century so that's sort of a tough uh, a bar to clear again. But if you think about it, the, the brilliance of the phone was you made the box and then they opened, they gave people the key and opened up the playground enough so that what you did with the box was up to everyone else. Um, the yeah. apps were developed by every other company or just random people in their basement all over the world. And, and the content, you know, and the usefulness, the utility came from there. What they're trying to do here is say that we control the box, but now they're also saying we're going to seed the box with things that you're going to absolutely need and are going to be the game changers. And that's a lot harder to do when you're spending, when, when you're talking about television production or film production, which is incredibly expensive and incredibly chancy, right? And, I mean, the yeah. odds that one of these shows that they're spending all this money on is the next great show or is a game changer is infinitesimally small. And I don't even mean that as a dig against the people they've hired to do it. It's just, this shit is hard and you can't predict it. Yeah, there's also some, I, I having a little bit of flashbacks to the, I guess about seven or eight years ago, maybe nine, 10 years ago, when um, journalism started getting optimized for search engine traffic. And then obviously uh, Facebook became the fire hose of all website traffic and everything was sort of starting to be built around would it catch on in an algorithm and would people find it in search and would people find it in their social media feeds uh, and that led to a lot of changes in the way we both write and read our news and just our writing in general and then obviously Facebook tried to position itself as essentially like the place people come to read 
and mm-hmm. uh, that had some some really negative impacts on a variety of industries, uh, like democracy. Like democracy, <laughs> I don't think necessarily that Apple getting involved with uh, like sci-fi television is going to have anywhere near the sort of effect that that other development I just talked about would. would. But there's something very strange about the idea that there's also going to be within Apple TV Plus, this this part of it is called channels, Apple TV channels. And that's where you can watch your HBO and your Showtime and your Cinemax and your stars. And presumably more and more channels will get added to that. What happens if Apple starts saying, hey, uh, this is the kind of programming we want to have within our Apple TV channels? Yeah. What happens if Apple is saying, these are the kind of news programs we're willing to run? This is the kind of content we're willing to have on this box. What happens when everything has to start being shot, maybe, to be optimized to view on an iPhone? Not that it isn't necessarily already, I, I don't know. But I, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned by the uh, benevolence of Apple as a distributor of content, because I don't have very good experiences in the past with when someone comes along and says, we're going to make everything a lot easier, but by the way, we control what you see. Yeah. And also I think you went to the the more pressing and more potentially dangerous place. I was going to go to a slightly less dangerous place, but I think it still speaks to um, judgment and, and taste and giving all the power over to one company. Apple has sort of tricked people for a very long time into thinking that they're cool. Yeah. Right, because and maybe maybe that's not true. I'd actually be curious about younger listeners to the podcast because, for me and probably for you as well, Chris, like Apple was the scrappy upstart when we got personal computers to do our homework in the '90s. Right, like people going to school in the '90s. Like my school lab had Apple two C's and two E's, and maybe like one Macintosh. Yeah. So I that's all I ever knew. They were educational computers, and that was just about it. And every other month, there was a story in some magazine or newspaper about how the company was going to go bankrupt and be, you know, and go under. And so it was kind of like, in, in as much as things that being cool and underdog versus pop, you know, major, uh, like major league and sellouts was a defining trait of the '90s. Apple versus Microsoft or Apple versus PCs was part of that and part of our mindset behind it. And so when all of a sudden the iMac came out and was turquoise and was cool and, you know, and suddenly iPods were in existence and in videos and everybody thought this was cool and amazing. Part of that was the carryover hangover of this company once having been a cool company. Fast forward 10 years and we're having bad late period U2 albums forced onto our phones. and Our $800 phones. Right. And it's like, wait a second, you know, are we sure? Yeah. Because the thing that I got from today's announcement was a kind of very still baby boomer love of a top down daddy's home auteur filmmaking, which is to say, yes, it's awesome. Octavia Spencer is a part of this and they're in there and Reese Witherspoon and Sofia Coppola. But you knew Spielberg was going to be there, right? Like the Spielberg J.J. Abrams school of this is these are the guys in glasses who make the culture is deep, deep, deep DNA for a company like Apple. And we saw some of that in those stories a few weeks ago being like, well, they're being a little odd with the content they're making because they're concerned about how computers are portrayed and yeah. they don't want things to be too edgy. You can't be this cool, utopian, Steve Jobs, John Lennon commercial, baby boomer dream of, of corporate tech idealism and make the TV shows people want to watch in 2019. I just don't think, I think those two things are in fundamental conflict and that's going to play out in a way that is going to directly, I don't know if it's going to directly affect consumers yet, but certainly we're going to be talking about that if we're talking about the content in the months and years to come. I agree with you. And I also would point out uh, our buddy, Mike Peters retweeted this guy, Ben Carlson, who had a very funny, usually don't cite tweets on the pod, but he had a very funny tweet about, um, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, basically. He says, I can't wait to cut the cord and simply subscribe to Netflix, Disney+, Plus, Apple TV, Prime Video, HBO Go, <laughs> Star Showtime Cinemax, Hulu, ESPN+, Plus, YouTube TV, and Sling TV. This will finally help me reach my goal of becoming a minimalist. Uh, yeah, yeah. We still have a lot of shit we have to, like, kind of figure out here. That winds up being, and if you add on anything like AMC or FX, you know, FX's over-the-top service or Shutter or Criterion or anything else that you're kind of adding in, you're getting right back up to what cable costs for most people. 
Yeah, and and you still have to pay uh, an, an internet bill, right? Yes. Like, yeah. It, 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 and I don't know what AT&T and DirecTV's play is going to be, but like part of it is going to have to be like, you're paying for your internet anyway, why not just take these cable channels too? I don't know. I, I don't know how long that works or what, you know, who who's buying, who's selling, but we are way, 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 way far away from any kind of resolution here. Uh, before we transition out of this, did you see, I mean, I know that we had gone over some of the early uh, show announcements a week or so ago when the New York Times ran that story, but was there anything that came out today or that you noticed today that you wanted to um, underline? No, I mean, I think that the person who, uh, there's a bunch of things that I think are interesting. I, I, for some reason, find myself incredibly cynical about a lot of the stuff that would be mm-hmm. in the drama, not even drama department. I find myself very cynical about a lot of these titles, and I, I don't know why. I think it's because I'm naively thinking too much about like the interference of the corporation with the final sort of product. I'm curious about the Damien Chazelle show. I'm curious about um, the Sofia Coppola show. I'm you know, or films rather. Uh, the Damien Chazelle is the is a TV show, or I, that's another thing that I think is actually kind of pretty interesting. I, I was going to ask you about was. If you look at some of the mock interfaces Apple put up, they really are melting the distinction between TV and movies. Yeah. So yeah. I, I well, thought that was think, fascinating. But it, I, Netflix is already sort of in front of that, right? I mean, do you feel, is the experience of pressing play on Triple Frontier different than pressing play on Grace and Frankie in any appreciable way? No, not not. it's not different. I would say everything that happens after you plus press play is different. <laughs> I mean, again, I, I haven't seen Grace and Frankie. I'd like to think they're very similar. Yeah. But, um, um, I don't know. Is there a show that you were particularly fired up about? I'm very concerned about one thing, which was the only announced uh, piece of children's programming. <laughs> uh, did, 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 did you read this? Did you hear about this? It's a, it's a program called Helpsters. Uh-huh. And it says, featuring a new puppet named Cody, Sesame Workshop, obviously the the people who bring a Sesame Street, or at least bring my 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 home Sesame Street. Sesame Workshop's first Apple series is pitched at preschoolers and will aim to teach them helpful skills like coding. That's fucking dystopian. Just, that is dystopian. Can I just put a pin in human reality for a second and be like, a hundred years ago, a new radio play starring Boss Tweed encouraging children <laughs> to work in slaughterhouses? Like... <laughs> This is so dark to me. I know. I know. It is so dark to me. Does Cody suggest a way you can make a killer app, you know, just by like looping people's credit card numbers and then making them buy extra lives? Like what what are we doing here? I can't wait to like the first commercial where like it's like a newborn baby and they put the baby in the mother's arms for the first time and then someone leans over and just puts AirPods in. Yeah, just, or just like, what if midway through the second season of every Apple show, we just casually notice that all the characters have data ports holes in the back of their heads, like the fucking Matrix? Yeah. They have like just to get everyone used to it? Yeah. Oh, fuck. It's like, oh, that, that that's just my lightning in-out cable. No worries. Uh, I just think, I gotta say, Chris, I mean, I know everyone who's listening to our show right now, who, by the way, we're so grateful for, are listening perhaps on their, what are they called? Airbuds? They're, they're, Airbud, they're listening Airbud on an receivers. iPhone via the Apple Podcast app on their AirPods. Yeah. Sure. So you're doing that, and that's great. But I got to say, I definitely deplugged a little this weekend because, you know, maybe things weren't working out so great on the political front. And it was the right move. It was the right move. Maybe I'm not a helpster, but uh, <laughs> I feel like it was healthier. Uh, we'll obviously be talking about any other developments that come out of this stuff, and I'm sure we'll have some follow-up conversations about it. Andy, thanks for calling in. Uh, I'm going to call Adam Naiman now and talk a little bit about us and Dragged Across Concrete. Will you, Chris, you know, will you let me know what the next shows we're watching for our podcast are? Like, I, you know, I can give you my assistant's email address if you just want to let her know. Sure. Just so I'm on board with you and the rest of the watchsters. It's just Andy know, at um, GodzillaForAmerica.com, right? <laughs> All right. Talk to you later, man. By the way. Tough times in the campaign this week. We were really, really running. We, God, Who could have seen Mayor God, Pete coming, man? 
Godzilla was a real deep state kind of guy, you know? And I just feel like the events of the last few days have Well, you guys could not have controlled the viral footage that got out where to follow up Mayor Pete, someone asked Godzilla to speak Norwegian and he just burned them to the ground with his voice of fire. (laughs) That was tough. Look, the thing is, I always knew that was going to be a problem. It was always a risk we ran with the candidate that we've chosen. But... Honestly, I would still vote for the fire-breathing monster over... Okay, I'm sorry. What's this? I'm hearing I gotta go. I gotta go. (laughs) Later, man. Bye. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Bud Light. Did you know not all alcohol products are required to list their ingredients? That was news to me. Bud Light is changing the game. They believe that we deserve to know our beer's ingredients, so they put an ingredients label right on the packaging. Bud Light, brewed with hops, barley water and rice, no corn syrup, no preservatives, and no artificial flavors. Find out what ingredients are in your beer. Bud Light, enjoy responsibly. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Microsoft Surface. The new Microsoft Surface Pro 6 can help you get things done, whether you're on the field or running a business. Take Brian Arakpo and Michael Griffin, two former NFL teammates who have opened a cupcake shop. With the Surface Pro, they can do everything they need from setting schedules to creating promotions for social media and designing new flavors. Plus, it's light, super fast, and has a great battery life. Brian and Michael are proving you can tackle all your passions with the power and speed of the new Surface Pro 6. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by CBS's The Twilight Zone. Don't miss the new CBS All Access original series that will make you ask yourself, what dimension are you even in? On April 1st, enter The Twilight Zone with Academy Award winner Jordan Peele in a role made famous by the classic series' creator, Rod Serling. The mind-bending reimagining will take you through the genres of sci-fi, horror, and fantasy to explore humanity's hopes, fears, prides, and prejudices in ways you never thought possible until now. The all-star cast includes Seth Rogen, Kumail Nanjani, Adam Scott, John Cho, Greg Kinnear, Sana Lathan, Allison Tolman, Jacob Tremblay, Stephen Yun, and more. Enter a new dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. April 1st, exclusively on CBS All Access. You know, if you've seen us, you know that Jordan Peele is kind of operating at a different frequency from pretty much any other filmmaker right now. I can't wait to check out what he does with The Twilight Zone. Obviously, a hugely influential show on everything from X-Files to Black Mirror to basically post-war American popular culture, but it does feel really ripe for a reimagining, given the digital world that we live in, given uh, all of the paranoia and anxiety that I think everybody feels these days, and I can't wait to see what Jordan Peele does with it. I really, this cast is pretty dynamite, so I have a lot of high expectations. You got Jacob Tremblay in his prime, Jordan Peele. Don't mess it up. Crossover into another dimension April 1st, only on CBS All Access. You can visit cbs.com slash watchtz to redeem your free trial today. That's cbs.com slash watchtz, W-A-T-C-H-T-Z, like Twilight Zone, to redeem your free trial of CBS All Access. Hey guys, about to get into my conversation with Adam Naiman about the movies Us and Dragged Across Concrete. It is a spoiler-filled conversation, so if you have not seen Us, like, say, Kaya... You might want to skip this conversation just because it's full of spoilers. Adam and I talk a lot about the meaning of the film and the ending. But uh, fair warning, we do talk about spoilers. And we talk about spoilers and Dragged Across Concrete. So maybe it's just a podcast you listen to after you've seen those movies. It's up to you. I am now joined by my buddy Adam Neiman. Adam obviously reviews and writes about film for The Ringer. He is also the author of the indispensable, I would say, Coen Brothers book. This book really ties the films together, which you can, it's a great stocking stuffer, although you would need an enormous stocking and it's not anywhere close to Christmas. But Adam is here today with me to talk a little bit about us and a little bit about a movie called Dragged Across Concrete, which I watched this weekend, partially because of Adam's super compelling review uh, on The Ringer last week. So Adam, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And for plugging the book a good uh, a good nine months before Christmas. I know. Well, I, I have points on the package. You know what I mean? I expect a little <laughs> bit of a kickback. I'm a little bit sure. reticent to tie us and Dragged Across Concrete together. Uh, yeah, of course. They are fairly different movies, obviously. I think you could... L- I mean, you could generally say they're about America. And they, I guess, like many movies, they're about descents into hell. But... 
I think that it's interesting that they more or less came out the same weekend. And I think it's really been interesting to watch the conversation around both of these movies. But let's start with Us. I know that uh, there's like there's so much anticipation around this movie in a way that I think that whatever problems you or me or anybody might have had about it, I think there's like a general really good will towards this film because it's so exciting to see original genre filmmaking at this level that provokes this much thought and features such uh, incredible performances. Yeah, I think that goodwill is something that Jordan Peele has like, it's a combination of like cultivated and earned, and he certainly hasn't abused it with up. I mean, it's a, it's a movie that fulfills and I think builds on some of the promise of get out. Even if I don't like it as much, it's this weird this weird situation where in a lot of ways it's an improvement and an advancement, but I think it just lacks the absolute clarity and ingeniousness that he, he hit upon with some of the ideas in the earlier movie. But it's definitely exciting to see a sort of filmmaker emerge who's not just confident and kind of on it, but who has like the resources and the support and the trust to do the stuff that he's doing. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a force for good in that, in that sense, even if, as you said, there's some things about the movie itself that I'm ambivalent about and the reviews across the board, I think while positive, you know, have picked up on some of those same maybe flaws. Yeah. I mean, this movie has definitely caused, sparked the most interesting debate of a film in our, uh, ringer slack that I've seen in a really long time. And I think it's basically comes down to what is your reading of the film? And so few right. films these days actually warrant or demand much of a reading outside of their surface surface narrative and sort of deciding totally. what that is. But, you know, I think that Peel has been purposefully and interestingly opaque about how, what he thinks his movie is about. Now, you can piece together in different interviews that he's talked to Sean on The Big Picture. The interview he did with Jonah Weiner in The Wall Street Journal, I believe, was really interesting. I think it was in The Wall Street Journal. It might have been Rolling Stone. Uh, I'll check myself on that. But, you know, a lot of it is about uh, economic disparity. A lot of it is about certain more metaphysical concepts of the kind of binary existence that you can live in this country. If you had to, if I, if I forced you into a corner at a cocktail party and I was like, what's us about? What would you say? I mean, uh, you know, if, if you asked me what us was about, I would say that it is probably best looked at as a, uh, a movie about that, the, 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 the line that the other, Lupita Nyong'o, the one referred to in the, car- in the, in the credits as Red, says this idea of we are Americans. Right. And I think it's a movie that is sort of about that, but it's also a movie about the urge on a filmmaker's behalf to say something like that and kind of make a statement like that. You know, if you look at the history of this idea of genre movie as social commentary, going back to Romero, you know, this idea that zombies are this all purpose metaphor or, or, or allegory for something, I find that that is much more tolerable, the less conscious it seems on behalf of the filmmaker. Yeah. And so part of me is really admiring Peel for wanting to use genre the way people like Romero did or Polanski and Rosemary's Baby, basically all the sources he's, he's cited to quote unquote, make a statement about the times or about the country. But that insistence on making a statement is so at odds with the things that he's tweeting and saying, where he's just like, it's a horror movie. I'm sort of trying to make it scary. And I would say that for me, what the debate is, it's not what the movie is about. It's sort of just, you know, is it is it okay for it to just be a horror movie? Does it need to be elevated, to use that stupid phrase of elevated horror, or does it need to be a metaphor? Does it need to be coherent, or yeah. can it just gesture at things? Yeah. These are the sorts of discussions I've been having with, with, with people since seeing the movie. Like, you know, does it have to be more? And if it's trying to be more and doesn't quite come together, do you hold that against it? Yeah, and I, you know, it's 1999 Movies Week on The Ringer, so I've obviously been thinking a lot about movies like Fight Club and The Matrix and Eyes Wide Shut and all, all, all sorts of films that have been going to be written about on the site this week and that you can read about right now. And, uh, you know, I recently did a rewatchables about the, the Matrix Live. And, you know, there's plenty of things in the Matrix that don't make any sense. But the filmmakers created a world in which 
the fact that those things didn't make any sense didn't matter. And I think that ultimately is my main critique of Us, which I should say up front, I had a blast watching. I think has uniformly great performances, especially Lupita, but additionally, um, really, really big fan of both Elizabeth Mosses, possibly even a bigger fan of uh, Rosé chugging Elizabeth Moss than yeah. um, the Silent Scream one. But if I had a critique of the film, it would be the movie's entertainment value is somewhat dependent and tied to, tethered even, to its coherence. And so we're going to talk a little bit about, um, I guess if you haven't figured it out already, we'll go into spoiler territory here. But, you know, the two rather expository speeches that are given about the the sort of existence of this underworld in the tunnels and what the tethered are and, you know, what, what has sort of prompted this uprising among them, I think works much better in terms of it being like a uh, toolkit for a reading of the political nature of the film, but not so great as storytelling for what is actually happening at the bottom of that escalator. Yeah, I would I would agree with that, and that's sort of what I mean. Or, or but, but I totally agree, and and that's that question of you know, if a movie stakes out territory where it has to make sense, you know, literally, and it doesn't, does that you know obviate or exclude its kind of figurative power, its kind of metaphorical intent? And you know, I, my heart sank a bit at the exposition. My heart even sank a little bit at some of the some of the staging towards the end, and. I thought some of the movie's emphases were in a weird place. I wrote in my piece that I, I even thought that last shot, which some people are reading as quite powerful, and I think as an idea is quite powerful, I thought felt weirdly borrowed from another movie from a few years ago called The Invitation, directed by yeah. by, by, by Karen Kusama. Like, I do think the movie's, if not entertainment value, I think its ultimate satisfaction value is tied um, you know, to things adding up. It's a, it's very, I, I haven't read too many people compare it to M. Night Shyamalan, but that's who it made me think of because there is a twist that is kind of necessary to complete not just the narrative logic of the movie, but like the emotional logic of the movie and just the whole existence of the story. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think while that twist is satisfying, some of the mechanics about getting us there are a little wonky. Yeah. And, you know, as I tried to say in my piece, and I don't know what you think of this, Get Out has some of that same wonkiness, but like the core idea is so ingenious and revelatory. It just has that feeling of like reality stripping away its skin. When the movie says what's going on, you're like, wow, that's really brilliant. In Us, I feel like there's five or six things that are trying to be that moment. And I wouldn't say they cancel each other out, but it just feels somewhat muddled to me, even if a lot of it is very smart. The movie, you know, you mentioned uh, The Invitation. Another movie that I thought about while watching Us was 10 Cloverfield Lane, which right. uh, I, I think is rather underrated. It, it's a, obviously a sort of an extension of the Cloverfield universe, and it came out a couple of years ago. Dan Trachtenberg directed it. And Damien Chazelle had a hand in the screenplay for that. And um, the thing that that movie did that I thought was really interesting was limiting the perspective of its characters until the very last moment where you get the sense that the, you know, essentially the final few frames that what's happening to the Mary Elizabeth Winstead character is in fact happening. A, it is really happening and B, it's happening all over the place. And yes. that moment happens a little bit earlier in the third act of Us where you're made aware, okay, this is a global or national phenomenon and I think it breaks people's brains a little bit because it the the reveal that this is a nationwide phenomenon, the reveal that every everybody has a, a tethered essentially, and that that those tethered are have all come up above ground. You just get distracted and you start asking all sorts of questions about like, well, what are yeah. the responses to this and what does that mean and why? How did they get these jumpsuits and? I think if you're operating, it depends on whether or not you want to reverse engineer your enjoyment of the movie. Because it makes you ask all these questions about the meaning and because Peel has basically said, I know what I think it's about, but I want to hear what other people think it's about. And I've heard like really, really compelling readings. Like I can't remember the origin of this, but on Slash Film, there was a back and forth. And I believe one of the writers uh, had a, a point that he felt like it was about the election and that the red jumpsuits were the Republicans kind of rising up and electing Trump. And it was this sort of moment of seeming betrayal, but also, you know, a, a lot of people who were like, you thought that I was always going to just 
feel underused and underutilized and shunted off to the side. And and now this is my rejection of that. That's one reading of it. I think there's there's a lot of stuff in there about economic and social mobility and the escalator kind of represents that. No matter what your reading of it is, I think you start to sort of pick at the plot points because you're trying to bend it towards what you think the movie is about. And then also because since it becomes such a major part of the story, you can't help but be a little bit of a Monday morning quarterback about some of the narrative decisions. No, you, you, you can't. And that's one of the reasons, again, it's not just about relentlessly comparing these, but Get Out keeps the story so small and with the exception of the cutaways to his friend, really keeps it from Chris's point of view. Even the explainer part of Get Out, where he sort of watches the instruction video about how and why it's happening to him, because it's from his point of view, it's it's kind of like both very immediate and the fact that it's a little vague doesn't, doesn't matter. I mean, it's really just him trapped in a basement and how he's going to get out. And I think you're quite right that when you enlarge it to the scope of a kind of national allegory or a kind of zombie movie outbreak, because rhythmically and beat-wise, I think that um, uh, has a lot of the zombie movie in it. It has mm-hmm. a lot of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead and movies like that in it. Yeah, when you make it that big, you 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 kind of do beg those logistical uh, those logistical conceptual questions. That said, I mean, I, I'm in agreement with you, but if someone were to say the ideas in it and the provocation of it are strong enough that they don't care about that stuff, and that's just what Hitchcock used to call the plausibles and who cares if the narrative makes sense, I can't totally disagree with that. I think that that's fair if someone's enjoyment of the movie kind of transcends those Monday morning quarterback questions, but I have them too. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been chewing over them with friends, and it's still not really feeling totally satisfying. Yeah, he's such a careful filmmaker. I mean, that opening sequence where you see Chud, you see the right stuff, you see these, you know, we see the Hands Across America ad, you're rooted in a certain 80s pop cultural experience. The understanding of homelessness and um, poverty is shot through that lens of acts of charity that are essentially like about making you feel better about the world rather than actually helping people. You know, I, I think that that I, I personally like was very interested in in that direction that the film was going, and I don't know necessarily that it was aided or that the film was helped by like leaving it all kind of murky and up for debate. Although I really have enjoyed debating this movie, and I, I've really enjoyed talking about this movie with people. Let's talk about another film that came out this weekend that is also the product of a director who has been reticent to explicitly say what his film is about. And that is Dragged Across Concrete. Adam, can you please just give me the bullet points for listeners who maybe haven't heard of this film, haven't heard of S. Craig Zoller? What, what's going on here? Well, you know, uh, I'm not fully sure. And I rarely say that because while I'm sure I'm wrong a lot of the time writing as a critic, you know, I'm, I'm usually fairly confident about what I think. Right. So here you have this filmmaker who has made three very long, very violent, very, I would say, attenuated and self-consciously slow genre films. He made a Western called Bone Tomahawk, which is unbelievably violent. He made a sort of not a prison break, almost kind of just like a prison fight movie called Brawl in Cell Block 99 with Vince Vaughn, which is very long and violent. And now he's made Dragged Across Concrete, which is become this huge talking point, both because of what it's about, which is these two kind of suspended racist LAPD cops played by Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn, who decide to shake down these these bank robbers after a heist. And also it's a talking point because people are just trying to figure out what to do with Zoller, mm-hmm. who, who seems to have these kind of dog whistles in his dialogue and his subject matter and his casting towards a kind of right-wing audience. Won't quite deny it in interviews won't quite uh, own up to it in interviews. And that sort of like fine line between giving an artist space to be ambiguous and just whether he's dissembling, I think is driving people kind of crazy. And also the movie is just so artful and powerful and well-made in places that people feel obliged to say something about it. Like no critic is kind of ignoring the talent that went into making it. Yeah. I think you saw a lot of that talent yourself, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that a film like Dragged Across Concrete 
and and I know that this is sort of like the the hardest thing to do right now, which is putting aside its politics. If the if if in fact you think its politics or the politics espoused by some of its characters are Zoller's politics personally, and I think that probably uh, I have something to say about that. But when you watch the film itself, which is a very very long movie that features lots of very static scenes of two characters talking. That being said. When you watch Dragged Across Concrete, you realize how homogenous movies have gotten because this feels like such a shocking jolt to the system. If you're, It kind of remixes your receptors a little bit. You're like, oh my God, like something completely, I'm watching something completely different right now. Even if it does obviously owe things to Tarantino or, and genre filmmakers or even Kurosawa and has like a, some of its, its compositions and framing and, and its staging is, is, is pretty classical. But I don't know that I've seen something in a long time where you could tell that from the cinematography, the staging, the control of the performances of the actors, the writing, and the music were all obviously orchestrated by someone who had a clear vision of what they wanted every aspect of this movie to 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 be presented as. Do you know? Does that make sense? No, it 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 does, and I think that what makes him attractive as a candidate for like premature auteur canonization, or you know, the the discussion around his aesthetic is that it is so strong. It is so confident, and it's very unique, right? Like, the a sheer amount of downtime in these movies versus the incredible, like, wide-awake savagery of the violence. Like, it's a really unique rhythm, which is what I tried to write about. And I think also just as genre cinema has kind of become a little bit gentrified and, as you say, homogenized, even in terms of violence and gore and scariness, that kind of A24 model of, like, you know, elevated horror or whatever. Yeah, Zoller yeah, yeah. seems to be presenting something pretty low down and raw and unrepentant. But never feels stagey and it never feels like... I mean, there, there's parts of it that you would think like, oh, does this kind of just play... It, it, it still feels like cinema. It doesn't feel like TV or like three TV episodes oh, no. stitched together. No, no, it, it very much feels like cinema. And I think it's that unapologetic quality and even the aestheticization of it, which is bordering on a kind of art film torpor and stasis that he's that he's using. I think it's really got people's kind of got people's eyes open wide and got their signals up trying to to figure out what to do with it. But in terms of separating the politics from the movie, I don't think the movie wants you to. And that's partially where I think it's potentially interesting to see a movie that's kind of unapologetically not liberal and politically correct. But I also suspect it's more trolling than conviction. At least that's where I came down on it in my review. Yeah, Not everyone agrees. I don't know what you think, but it's actually in some ways the calculated aspect of it makes me feel insincere and almost makes me like it dislike it more than if I thought it was a really, truly right-wing film. I I don't know where I come down. So, so basically what I think is that this reminds me a lot of some of the underground culture that I grew up around in the 90s that had um, a sort of ironic edge to it that would be, I guess, best sort of pointed at like something like Big Black, which is this band that Steve Albini, yeah, yeah. a Chicago engineer and record producer had, that would sort of use the... Um, imagery like really out like pretty pretty aggressive imagery and its album covers and a lot of its song titles and a lot of the lyrics would be this sort of expression of the deepest darkest id you could have and uh, they had an album called songs about fucking and it, it was basically there was like a whole genre of stuff like music and and literature called pig fuck you know that was just kind of like this like hey we're art school kids but we're also dabbling in the uh like language and iconography and and visuals of um I don't I don't even know like how to describe it but basically like neanderthalish ways of thinking and I don't think that anything in dragged across concrete can be ascribed to what Zoller is saying which is like this is just the authentic way our characters would he says he leads with his characters and that his his characters determine everything. But the affect of the acting in this movie is so flat, it is almost as if they are 
puppets. You know what I mean? Like he is speaking through each of these characters. They, every, everybody in these movies talks in a very particular way that is inimitable. Sure. And so and you start to you get are. into authorship versus meaning. And you also start to get into, well, it's not that I reject the idea that this movie can exist. I think the objection comes from uh, in 2019, people are saying like, is it okay to winkingly make something like this if it is a wink in general, in, 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 in truth? Well, I mean, and that's just it. I mean, it's funny. We're talking about the ambiguity of interpreting us. I think in some ways, Dragged Across Concrete doesn't beg so much for interpretation. It's a pretty, as the title suggests, kind of hard, concrete, unmistakable crime story. It's not hard to understand what happens in it narratively. It's not hard to understand the parts that you're supposed to feel brutalized by or shocked by. But the the ambiguity is, yeah, I think in terms of, 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 of authorship and meaning, when I read him in those interviews talk about how he's led by his characters, you know, he must be the first filmmaker in history to simply be channeling what his fictional characters want to say. Yeah. You know, he right. writes them. Right. And the question, and the question of who he gives the most, like he's just a medium. To is, yeah. Right. Like he's just a medium. You know, the question is who he gives the most oxygen to and how are the other characters drawn? He's, talked a lot very defensively about the fact that there's a third lead in the film who's an African-American, the, the, the first character we see in the film, yeah, uh, by Henry John. But that character is defined, I think, in such a reductive, cliched way from the beginning, and not just because it's genre fiction where everybody is an archetype, but because he's the most boring kind of archetype, you know, like doing this to help his mom and he's got a little brother in a wheelchair and he's going out for one last job and he doesn't say anything interesting. He doesn't get to speak in these kind of poetic, droned-out cadences that the two cops get. He kind of just disappears from the movie for a long time. Yeah, And, you know, he... So it's hard for me to take him at his word that he's interested in putting viewpoints in conflict when certain viewpoints dominate so much more than others. And then he just does this shit that feels so much like trolling, like giving uh, Vince Vaughn's character a kind of racialized girlfriend who then doesn't, like, react at all to the fact that he's been suspended because of, like, racist behavior and brutality on his job, where he has the Mel Gibson character talk about, like, where Mel Gibson's wife talks about, I wasn't racist until I moved to a a black neighborhood. And you're like, what... Am I supposed to believe that? Am I supposed to believe that they have a crappy apartment when it looks so big and nice and brightly lit? It's very frustrating. But I can see why, especially because film criticism tends to be people who are identifying themselves as progressive and liberal, and if not politically correct, very interested in that idea of like diversity and representation. That's where film criticism's at now, as it probably should be. This movie is like catnip, both to piss them off or to get them to try and make excuses on its behalf. Yes. And it's pretty fraught. Yeah. Ultimately, the thing that's dragged across concrete is the audience. You know, I mean, I'm sure that, that that is not lost on people. I personally am always interested in being dominated by a movie, uh, either right. psychologically or viscerally. And I think that this movie does that. Um, I, it is it is a real, it's a friggin' Rubik's Cube, though, trying to solve what it it is ultimately, its, its value in the culture is. Well, but also it occupies in some ways so much space, like we're talking about it on this podcast and a lot of major critics have written about it, but it's essentially a VOD release. Yeah, that's actually the ingenious part is that everybody's talking about this movie, which normally would be kind of like forgotten among anything that shows up on the iTunes store on a Friday. And can can we say, I mean, I don't think it's a small point too, and I don't know how much you'd want to say about it. Gibson, whose casting is where I think a lot of the notoriety that he's coming from, whether that's deliberate or not, Zoller says he didn't write it with Gibson in mind. Gibson, who has about as much stuff that you can say about him that's bad as any actor I can think about, he's really fantastic in the movie. Yeah, the I have the no acting was never the problem. Yeah, yeah. No, the yeah. acting for him was never the problem, but he's genuinely excellent in this film. I take no pleasure in saying it, I guess. Yeah. But he's really good. Well, I'd be interested to know if 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 watch listeners feel like they have the stomach for it. I'd be curious to hear other people's responses to it. Adam, yeah. thank you so much, man, for calling in, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. 